episode 17, The History of Health Economics, with Dr. Patty Peoples from healtheconomics.com. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Patty Peoples, who is the founder of healtheconomics.com. I need to have Patty back on the program for a part two. She is a wealth of information. Today, we talk about the history of health economics in the United States, how we got where we are today, lessons that we've learned along the way, and also the intersection of economics and, and morality, really. So without giving much more away, help me welcome Patty to the program. Welcome to the program this morning, Patty. Thank you, Stacey. Let's discuss the online community that you formed at healtheconomics.com. If I log on to healtheconomics.com, what, what am I going to find there? Healtheconomics.com is what we call a connected community. This connected community serves our industry and our profession's primary resource portal. We are devoted to providing news, resources, white papers, policy decisions, conferences, jobs, and more for the health economics, outcomes research, market access, epidemiologic, health information technology community across the globe. Yeah, it's really robust. You have so many resources up there. It, it, the site is, is wide and it's deep. It's, it's pretty amazing how much is there. Thank you. We have more than 10,000 resources. They are continuously updated every day. We call from reviewing probably six to 800 news articles and various things that have been published on the web um, each day. And from those, a group of us who were health economists and news editors select six to 10 items to place on the website. So it is an it is a strong editorial effort at separating the wheat from the chaff. I think that has really characterized the benefit of healtheconomics.com in that it is a curated resource portal. I found your story absolutely fascinating about how you, I don't want to say stumbled into because that, that might be not entirely correct. I mean, you definitely had a plan for, for beginning healtheconomics.com, but I, but I think it's I think you'd probably even say that the net result might not have been what you had anticipated when you when you began. Oh, I think you're absolutely right, Stacy. I think in in most people's story of a successful event in their life, there's always a bit of luck that factors into it, and I'm not embarrassed to admit that. And also, I am not averse to admitting that uh, in many cases the ideas have come from others. And I have been the one that took those ideas and implemented it. And that really is why I call it a connected community. Very much the success of healtheconomics.com is because it is it has started as a community approach and grown that way. The website started back in 1993. I always laughingly say it was right about the time that Al Gore invented the internet because it, literally in 1993, many of uh, the listeners may remember that that was around the time that maybe you were beginning to get numerous 
CDs from AOL. And I happened to be working on my PhD in health economics uh, in Philadelphia. And I got the chance to, at the end of my program while I was working on my dissertation, the chance to move to Africa with my husband. I very much wanted to go there, but I wasn't quite finished with my degree. And I needed a way to do that and to get to go to Africa. And so the interwebs <laughs> provided that as the way for me to do that. The Webernets. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those tubes in the sky. <laughs> and so with armed with a laptop and my backpack, we headed over to Africa. I needed to be able to communicate with both my professors as well as experts who could help me with programming SAS because I was doing some of my analysis and doing the research. That's the essential part of the dissertation. My husband really wanted to learn how to design web pages. So he literally took a computer magazine, which was about 50 pages total at the time because there weren't many. And there was an article that was about the size of a postcard that said how to design a web page. Steve followed that step-by-step instructions and designed a website for me that as I found a resource, then I could put it up on this particular website. And if you recall back then, the way you found something on the internet was to use very complicated tunneling through the Minnesota Gopher system or some other very complex method of finding a resource. So when you found it, it was often really hard to get back to it. That's what I wanted to simplify. Armed with this brand newly designed webpage, extremely cleverly named Patty People's Guide to Health Economics, Medical, and Pharmacy Resources on the Internet. I love that. (laughs) With a URL that extended from one end of the room to the other. We put this website up and I shared the website on several IRC groups, which were our version of chat rooms at the time, focused on particular topics. And I was a member of one that analyzed short form 36 quality of life instruments and, you know, a variety of things that we were working on. And I shared the website. And most importantly, we had placed a section on the website that it gave the opportunity for visitors to submit resources that they thought would be relevant. That right there, I target as the single most important event in the development of healtheconomics.com. That enabled we as a group to build this website. And it has continued that way to this day. It's really true. You know, having been on the website that... Um Maybe you're the first crowdsourcing website, Patty. Definitely, <laughs> definitely the first website that has successfully managed to get a whole bunch of economists to crowdsource. That's true. I think we could that. probably say the first crowdsourcing for health economists. I wouldn't go so far as to say that for the entire world. <laughs> <laughs> Many people these days consider economics as as sort of a, a synonym for provider cost cutting. If I stated that, How would you respond? I would say that cost cutting is exactly what many of us thought economics was 30 to 40 years ago. So I think, Stacey, that you are reflecting a prevailing thought that 
has existed in our history, in our profession, and also prevailing thought, cost-cutting, that probably exists today in the general public and perhaps with some of our government representatives. But it is, it is not. Economics within the healthcare system really is about effective and efficient allocation of resources. And those two words, effective and efficient, are essential because it marries the fact that one is looking for effectiveness and looking for an allocation of cost in a way that allows you to attain that effectiveness. In our history, we have definitely gone down the cost-cutting path and found that it does nothing but what we call squeeze the balloon of cost. That if you squeeze cost, if you envision one of those long balloons that they make into dogs at your um, carnival with your children, if you envision that you would squeeze one end of it to force the air down to the other, you're not really changing the amount of air in it. You're just changing where the air is and where it's bulging out. And that's essentially what we did when we tried to cut cost without focusing on outcomes. And that very much happened in the 80s. In fact, um, in 1983, when we passed the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act under the Reagan administration that made very, very significant changes to the way Medicare was reimbursed, uh, and, and particularly in the inpatient environment. And it was at that time that we moved from a cost plus reimbursement system to a cost-based reimbursement system. And what that meant is back uh, before, before that, the 80s, what, the way we reimbursed hospitals on cost is that it was essentially the actual cost of an item, let's say a, a Band-Aid, and then they were allowed to add a profit margin onto that. And so what that resulted in is that the more items, services, interventions one did, then then theoretically the more profit could be made. And of course, healthcare costs ballooned drastically. It was in response to that that TEFRA included the diagnosis-related groups in order to try to get the massive cost in healthcare under control. So diagnosis-related groups were introduced, which moved it to a cost of care-based reimbursement based on a particular diagnosis. So hospitals then were reimbursed a certain dollar amount based on a particular disease or based on a particular diagnosis. And if the actual patient incurred more costs because of a, a different intervention or because of a a side effect or an adverse event, well, the hospital lost money. And then if the hospital was more efficient at caring for them and was able to release the the patient from the hospital and the cost was less than they were reimbursed, then they made money. So, of course, there was a great effort to treat patients as cheaply as possible. What very quickly became evident is that patients were being moved out of a hospital maybe sooner than they were ready. Maybe they were being given cheaper drugs rather than the most effective drug and, in fact, were either being readmitted or were having significantly poorer outcomes during care or after they had returned home. And approximately what year was this? 
This was 1983 when the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act was passed. And when do you think that most people realized what was going on with exactly what you're saying, that that basically if you squeeze the balloon in the middle, then it's not like you're curing people faster. You're just making their hospital visit less expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that then simultaneous to that was the insurgent of HMOs and managed care. Those patients were then being handled within the managed care arena where they that managed care company was then on the hook, if you will, for any subsequent events that might have happened once the individual went in the hospital and then maybe got released and had a reoccurrence or had other significant follow-up events. It became evident from the managed care insurgents and our ability to then begin tracking patients over their healthcare over several years, that it became evident that we needed to focus more on outcomes. So the late 80s and the 90s really in the United States brought in the arena of cost effectiveness. It also began to bring in an arena of our understanding that the types of care that we were that we were giving to patients differed drastically based on where one lived. That that also began to highlight the fact that we really did not have any sort of universal approach to treating and managing disease. Other countries were far ahead of us. Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, all with with national health systems that were government-sponsored and were focusing on treating the management of the individual over their lifespan. Well, in the United States, we had very, very intermittent care. And we still do, even with the even with the Affordable Care Act, it, that's going to take care of it to some extent. But we still are struggling as a nation with having a health care system rather than a health system. We really treat disease rather than treating the health of the patient. I've heard it called a sick care system. You know that mm-hmm. that we don't really have a health care system, we have a sick care system. So it's basically the same idea. Exactly. So the the 80s and the 90s then brought in a very significant focus on looking at at cost effectiveness. Now, it's not that we hadn't done that. Um, Actually, in the 60s, the insurgence of hemodialysis and kidney transplantation for uh, chronic kidney disease was the first example where we as a nation actually started thinking about value of healthcare. There was an internal debate of whether or not chronic kidney disease patients should get a lifetime of hemodialysis or should they get kidney transplant. And in fact, and in 1972, Medicare then began reimbursing for the treatment of chronic kidney disease. And that was an example where we as a nation said that, you know, we are, we believe that this is kidney transplantation is cost effective care for this kind of patient. What is the exact definition of of cost effective? Because I know lots of people get confused between efficient spend and cost effective. You know, could you just spend a second, give us a glossary definition? You're right, Stacey. There's often a a misuse of the term in the general public and, and on occasion, even within the professional environment. We have moved in our society from looking at things as either just a straight cost analysis, where we simply just look at the cost in one column of what it what the cost 
savings are and what it costs to treat a patient. That's just a pure cost analysis to trying to do a cost benefit analysis where we look at the cost for the intervention and the benefit. We then try to put a dollar value on a benefit such as a year of life saved. That opens up tremendous ethical dilemmas of trying to put a dollar value on someone's life. So we have then looked at a third way of economic analysis that's called cost effectiveness analysis. And that is a type of economic analysis that compares the relative cost and the outcomes, the effects, if you will, of two or more courses of action. So it is a comparative approach. You essentially have the in a ratio, you have the cost in the upper part of the equation and the outcome as reflected in, for example, days of symptom-free days or quality-adjusted life years or some other metric that is relevant for the disease that you were looking at. So in asthma treatment, oftentimes the cost-effectiveness comparison is cost per symptom-free day. How much did drug A versus drug B cost and how many symptom-free days do they each provide? And you, you do that mathematical calculation to include both of those things. So it's a very simple way of combining the outcome with the cost metric. And this would be a really important point for anybody who is, for example, trying to sell a branded drug or trying to sell a new technology, which is which they're hoping will be used in place of the status quo. Because it sounds like what you're saying is what someone needs to prove is the cost effectiveness of the new intervention versus the old intervention via the means that you're just explaining now, symptom-free days or, or, or whatnot. That is right. And so then you might see a problem that comes if you have cost per symptom-free day with asthma, if you had a particular intervention in the area of reduction of cholesterol, it might be cost per year of life saved if you're looking at the, the reduction in mortality. And so how does one compare things when you have different metrics? That is where the quality adjusted life year has come in, and that is a universal effectiveness measure that includes the effect on the patient's life adjusted for the quality of that life. And that can be done across therapeutic areas, across interventions, across patient populations. And then what that does from a policy perspective is that it allows you to look at all of the different diseases and drugs and interventions that you have and allows you to, to rank order them in a way that allows you to spend money on things that provide health gains and to allocate money away from those things that are not cost effective. That was, if you remember, the Oregon system that 
became highly controversial in the the early 90s. The state of Oregon was ranking everything on cost per quality and deciding with their limited amount of dollars what they were going to reimburse for their state-sponsored health plans based on cost per quality. NICE does this in the United Kingdom. Organizations that look at things in a very global approach will use cost per quality. Thank you very much for that little remedial definition. Back to the story. After that brief interlude, we're at the juncture where people start realizing that perhaps this this cost cutting, the cost containment measures that had been put into place are not perhaps producing the results, the intended results. Then what happened? There were several uh, important things that were were published in in our field. One of them was a, a study by the National Center for Policy Analysis at Harvard. They focused on, for example, 185 life-saving interventions that took place in the United States each year. Over these 195 life-saving interventions, this cost the U.S. $21.5 billion and saved 590,000 life years. This study then began to investigate different ways that we could allocate that $21.5 billion. They found that actually the number of life life years saved could be doubled if resources were allocated to more cost-effective interventions. That was an example of how we could begin to take these dollars and move them to a more efficient and effective use. Now, that comes with a with a, a ream of ethical issues because what if your what if your grandmother is on the losing end of one of those less cost-effective interventions? I have a personal story. My children were born at 27 weeks of gestation. And we call them the the multi-million dollar babies because they they spent uh, three and a half months in the NICU and their chance of of living healthily was about 3%. And I have twins. Fortunately, they're both extremely healthy and have no residual problems, but they are very cost-ineffective babies. That was an incredible personal learning experience for me because at that point I was running a health economics department at a pharmaceutical company and my my day was spent thinking about these policy issues. And then all of a sudden I'm in the hospital at the, the incubators of my babies and had anyone said they were not going to treat them because it wasn't cost effective, I, I would have... I would have lost it. In the United States, we don't live in an environment where we believe that healthcare delivery should be purely based on cost or cost effectiveness. It's just not what our nation has been founded upon. However, the flip side happens when one cannot get care for something because we've spent all the money on maybe something that was less useful. These are the dilemmas that our health policy professionals grapple with every day. And these are the dilemmas that come with both sides of the aisle arguing across benefits and the risk of the Affordable Care Act are with having a nationally based health delivery system that's paid for by the government. Although at the same time, some of the I mean, obviously, some of the questions are very 
charged with should we do this or should we not? And it becomes a very ethical and moral question. Although on the other hand, sometimes the question is pretty cut and dry. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. if there's two ways that a disease can be treated and, and one is inarguably more successful than the other, and it also happens to be less expensive, there's no question there that if someone is getting all kinds of extra tests and MRIs and, and therapies which have not proven effective, basically we're wasting money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us who, who are listening are obviously in the health industry on either the provider side or, or the payer or pharma or tech side. And, and what we're effectively trying to do during our day jobs is just either justify why our technology or product is cost-effective versus either the standard of care or other competition. Or on the flip side, trying to figure out what to do that is the most cost-effective. So I think this is a really great framework, and I I definitely have a much better understanding of of the history of kind of how we got here and and why. The other part of that, Stacey, that's really important is not only looking at is something cost effective, but you also have to look at the burden of disease. We're seeing a lot of that in in today's environment, a very politically charged environment on the pricing of um, cancer drugs, Savaldi for hepatitis C, et cetera, with a lot of the orphan drugs that are coming out that are extraordinarily high priced. So I'll give you a couple of smaller examples in the cancer area, because most of your listeners have probably read about this in Forbes and New York Times and elsewhere. In terms of burden of disease and how how much the contextual factor of that and cost effectiveness. In the United States, if we have a very, very effective treatment for an orphan disease, but it only affects a very small percentage, although it may use up your budget and and then you have no money to give prenatal uh, child care or maternal vitamins to a pregnant woman. You see the ethical dilemmas that come into the the field of health economics. It is such a fascinating field because it encompasses public policy, ethics, medicine, economics, and sociology from the standpoint of quality of life analysis. When I was actually studying economics in Sweden, my next door neighbor was a Fulbright scholar doing research on exactly what you're talking about before on preemies Mm -hmm. and exactly when it became cost ineffective or and or morally like what was the moral and economic intersection of caring for preemies and interestingly she had a lot of paper that she would print out so I would do my stuff on the back of her dissertation right so (laughs) actually I'm very well read on the (laughs) the topic (laughs) There's one thing I definitely want to get to today, and that is something that I've heard you talk about, Patty, which is that there are two sides to this economic story, that if someone is trying to gain provider adoption of a product or service or a standard of care, how does all of the things that you just told us transform into a successful marketing product development strategy? In the United States, when we do cost-effectiveness analysis, it's extremely essential that the first principle of the analysis is to decide from whose perspective the analysis is being done from. And what I mean by that is whose perspective are we valuing cost and benefits? 
There are many options. You can value the cost and benefits from the perspective of the payer. In most cases, your insurance company or the government, Medicare, Medicaid. You can value it from the societal perspective that is going to look at things that are not necessarily paid for by the managed care arena, but are incurred or the society benefits from. You can look at it from the patient's perspective and you'll get a different answer depending on whose perspective one analyzes it from. You can also look at it from the perspective of the provider. Now, in today's arena, where the providers, the physicians, the treaters of disease, within the Affordable Care Act and when some of the changing arenas that they're practicing in, such as the integrated health delivery networks, uh, accountable care organizations, the actual physicians or the providers are being rated on quality metrics. Their salary is being tied to this. Their ability to practice within that network is being tied to that. In many ways, the provider is becoming a health policy assessor as well. To that end, if they are going to be on the hook, if you if you will, for quality metrics, then we better make darn sure that we're collecting quality metrics in a way that makes sense to them and gives them the information they need. These are some of the humongous changes that we're seeing in our health system, and it is fueling the insurgence of all of the health information technology tools that are at the forefront, giving both the um, on the the frontline providers the ability to see how their patients are performing outcomes-wise and cost-wise to all of their patients they treat and to the population as a whole and to their peers. I can definitely see what you're saying in the sense that if, you know, as you say, that if if we're working with a, a provider, for example, a patient-centered medical home or an accountable care organization, or really even any doctor who is receiving any pay-for-performance incentives, now all of a sudden it becomes up to the practice to ensure that prescribers or doctors in their exam rooms are adhering to a standard of care which they which the practice has deemed is going to be the most successful for them. Is that kind of what you're talking about? That's absolutely true. And then furthermore, when you go up the funnel, that individual provider not only needs to adhere to a standard of care as you've said of the practice, but that practice needs to adhere to a standard of care of the universal organization of which which that practice is part of, which is increasingly common now, of course. And then because patients have the ability to decide where they go get care now, they are looking at quality metrics and deciding where they want to be treated, what hospital they want to go to, or what particular uh, provider system they want to be cared for. So then those those performance measures also are ideally available in a universal way so that patients can make those decisions. Employers can make those decisions when they set policy for their employees of where the employees get treated. So the the whole um, insurgence of quality metrics is absolutely inextricably linked with health information technology. And those things are inextricably linked with cost effectiveness and a 
more universal approach to treatment in a way that we don't see massive changes in ways breast cancer is being treated in Florida versus Maine versus California. So I know you do a lot of work with the pharma and medical device industries. Do you see that there is a pervasive or any kinds of pervasive misunderstandings within those two groups where they're not understanding perhaps some some of the implications of the things that you just talked about and perhaps not evolving how they're doing things in, in, in reaction? Yes, I believe that there is, that I would characterize it as, as an understanding challenge. And I would also characterize it as um, that there are differences in objectives. So, for example, the, the frenemy example that I give are pharma versus payers. They're both codependent <laughs> upon each other. Pharma, the predominant decider, if you will, of the use of their drugs, are the major payer organizations in the United States, the major uh, insurers, as well as Medicare and Medicaid. So the decider of the drug needs to know certain things. They need to know how many patients have the disease for which you treat. How does your drug compare with the next best thing with a predominant drug of choice currently? And then the question they always ask is, how much is this going to cost me if I treat, for example, in the hepatitis C arena, if they are using Savaldi, the drug that's just been uh, released by Gilead at $84,000 a treatment course, how many patients is the managed care organization have with hepatitis C and what percentage of those might get Savaldi versus not being treated at all because there's a low rate of diagnosis, what might be treated with the com- competing alternatives or which, which are less efficacious than Savaldi, such as interferon, et cetera, and what's going to be the impact on their budget. Now, pharma would like to give that information to a certain extent. On the other hand, they are somewhat disincentivized to give that information if in Savaldi's example, so it's priced at 84 grand a year, a treatment course, then if they they would ideally like 100% of the hep C patients treated with Savaldi. Well, there, if we treated 100% of the hep C patients with Savaldi, we wouldn't be treating any other disease in certain payers. Prison systems are grappling with this hugely where hepatitis C is prevalent. And they're, they're trying to figure out how are they going to use this particular drug that is clearly an advance, an important clinical advance. But if they use it at the rate that it theoretically should be used, they'll blow their budgets right out of the water and they can't take care of the dental needs or the cholesterol or the heart attack or the diabetes. The payers and the farm and the and the pharma industry, they have the universal shared goal of improving the health of the patients. But the the water level gets a little high when you have an intervention that is effective, but is going to blow the budget. And this is going to go back to what you were talking about earlier, where ethics and economics start to collide. 
that's exactly right. You know, in in economics, we 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 go by a doctrine of called uh, justus pretium, um, which means just price, the fair value. And when you look at a relationship between price and worth or price and value, it advocates that by moral necessity, price must reflect worth. Now, in a free market of which our United States is built on, price often reflects what the market bears or what one is willing to pay. Which one is better? Now, one could argue that when a commodity affects the lives of the health of the individual, just price should prevail because of moral implications. So that's like in a hurricane down here in Florida, you know, we have the the no price gouging law. If we've got a hurricane and everybody's starting to board up their windows, then Home Depot can't go and, and triple the price of plywood. There's a law against that. But when commodities are not essential to life suffering, what the market will bear is appropriate because competition will take care of things. It's not constrained by ethical considerations. You know, an example of that is how much we pay, you know, an NBA player or the price of a Picasso. But in healthcare, we sort of do both. And so what you see with the price of Savaldi is that, in fact, Savaldi is is theoretically cost effective when you look at cost per year of life safe because it, it, it by and large cures hep C. However, a lot of people have hep C and certain environments have a lot more hep C than others. And if all patients are treated, there won't be any money left for anything else. And so therein lies the dilemma. We see that in cancer drugs. 11 of the Last 12 cancer drugs um, that were approved by the FDA in 2012 actually cost more than $100,000 per course. Some of them are used in like pancreatic cancer, of which the average uh, survival rate is only three months. But they may, they may be demonstrated as cost effective, but they are just simply not affordable. And so we can't be so naive to think that cost-effectiveness analysis solves our healthcare system problem. There still is the practical consideration of what can we afford. Do you have any or are there any best practices that have been borne out in any other parts of the world that might be a little bit further ahead of us relative to these kind of questions around how to proceed? Or are we in uncharted waters here? Well, there are certainly examples that um, are very relevant to look at. You know, when you look at all of the different metrics that are provided often by the World Health Organization or others that look at mortality rates and morbidity and childhood vaccination rates and overall health, then countries that developed countries that have a universal health system fare tremendously better than the United States. And part and parcel of that absolutely is the fact that we have a sick care system, as you, Stacy, so eloquently said at the beginning, we treat the sick rather than, than treating for health because our, in, our patients, our, our people, are in an intermittent system of care, and there's no one that is incentivized to keep them healthy. 
other than the individual. And that may or may not be present in the individual's own way of living life. In a universal health system, then we are incentivized to do things early to prevent cost later on. Healthcare interventions that occur early but might be slightly costly because they can prevent a cost later on seem to translate based on metrics that the overall nation is healthier. It's my view, and almost every health economist was in support of the Affordable Care Act because they are looking at things that if we move more patients into a universal method of treating them, then then in time, our overall health system cost will go down because we're not spending so much money at that critical juncture where a patient is just so sick that that a million things are wrong and the interventions are very expensive. It will be very interesting to see how this plays out, especially given the propensity of this country to think in very short-term focus. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about healtheconomics.com again, where actually there's a lot of information about the things that we're, we're talking about to be found on the site. So if you're interested in delving further, I would highly recommend that you, you head over there. But if someone wants to get involved in the, in the healtheconomics.com community, how do, they, how do they go about it? Our website is free for anyone to use. All of the resources on there are available to be viewed for free. There are some paid resources that are provided by other organizations. So some reports are free, but you may surf the website and utilize everything on there completely for free. Within the website, you can look under the resources category and there are syndicated reports, white papers, sections on comparative effectiveness, sections on data analytics and informatics or the various databases that are used um, that help us analyze things from epidemiologic perspectives, things on statistical methods and real-world observational research, just a whole variety of resources that can help someone who may be interested in or may be involved in valuing healthcare interventions. We also have a blog. We also do a podcast series of our, of, of our own. It's a, it is a fantastic and very well, well-rounded site. So I would highly recommend heading over to healthonomics.com. If someone wants to get in touch with you or if, if someone needs additional help or consulting in health economics, is the healthonomics.com community a good place to, to seek out that kind of consulting? Yes, absolutely. There, there are several ways that an individual who might be interested in availing themselves of additional help, ways that they can get that. The first is that I encourage you to email me directly, patty at healtheconomics.com, P-A-T-T-I, and I will certainly listen to your needs and try to direct you myself. The second way is that you can look at the resources on the website, see who's doing work in a similar area and and go that way. And the third is to log on to our health economics business directory And that business directory is a resource of all of the service providers in the health economics space. So you can learn about those organizations that are doing research 
from clinical research organizations to advertising agencies and beyond that are involved in that. And that particular site is hebizdirectory.com. Fantastic. Patty, it has been, I, I feel like we could probably talk for another hour and a half. Um, it has been so <laughs> fascinating to speak with you today. I really appreciate you taking the time out. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. These are these are interesting and fun questions to talk about, and they're always filled with ethical and moral and social dilemmas. And it's become good dinner dinner party conversation because everyone has an opinion now. I love to go to cocktail parties with economists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually usually we're the least interesting people at the party, and now with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and it's so in the news. Everyone is a, is a, is a practicing health economist now. <laughs> well, we will we will definitely need to make a plan, my friends. Yes, we will tip a glass together. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, Stacy. Thank you. In case I didn't mention it before, my name is Stacy Richter, and all of the links to things that Patty mentioned, healtheconomics.com, etc., is available at relentlesshealthvalue.com slash 17. There you will also find the show notes for this episode. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.